Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by Mosaic, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free two-week trial on their website at www.streamrg.com. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.com using the promo code MICROCAP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker-dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft, that's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T, and you're listening to episode 210. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rkraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the Microcap message. Special thank you to our sponsors for today's episode, Stream by Mosaic, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free two-week trial on their website at www.streamrg.com. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.com using the promo code MICROCAP. And quarter whose mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Visit your app store of choice to try it out. And that's Quarter, Q-U-A-R-T-R. We're also very excited to host our first in-person event in nearly three years. The Planet Microcap Showcase is back in Las Vegas on May 3 through 5, 2022 at Bally's Hotel and Casino. It's time to see each other. It's time to network in person. So let's make it all happen in the entertainment and business capital of the world. For more information, please go to www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. Now for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with William Green, the author of Richer, Wiser, Happier. I didn't really know what to expect prior to our chat. You know, I, I read William's book, and I was excited to chat, but you know, when when I have an author on, you chat about the book, his background, the usual. But wow, I mean, I, I don't really know the best way to preface this conversation other than it has been one of my favorite interviews I've done for the show. Uh, William has an encyclopedic recall, professor-like ability to distill important lessons from his resources, and he conveyed all of that in an incredibly humble way. I'm still kind of processing everything we discussed, and I'm just so thankful to have had the opportunity. And if there's nothing else you could take away from this episode, just one word, simplify. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 210 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with William Green. This episode is brought to you by Stream by Mosaic 
You can find them at www.streamrg.com. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.com. Stream is an expert interview transcript library that is starting to become an integral part to investors' research process. They have a number of interviews on a wide variety of companies, including TMT, consumers, industrials, real estate, and more. Stream provides over 300 expert interviews per week, and 70% of their experts are found exclusively on Stream. Stream was built by Mosaic and unlike any other transcript libraries. Stream integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Stream's community of experts and thought leaders partner with Stream to build their professional brands and expand their industry influence. Right now, there are approximately 8,500 plus call transcripts available. For more information, please visit www.streamrg.com. Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And my next guest is uh, someone that needs no introduction. I'm a huge fan of his book. Um, and now I just, I'm so excited for his new venture as a co-host on the Investors Podcast Network. Uh, I mean, he's got some incredible interviews that he's already done and lined up. So uh, without further ado, I'd, I'd like to introduce William Green author of Richer, Wiser, Happier, How the World's Greatest Investors Win in Markets and Life. William, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Uh, I'm great. Thank you so much for having me, Robert. I'm happy to be here with you. It, it's great to have you on. So listen, I know we have limited time. I feel, you know, look, I, I could BS with you all day, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, some, some light talk banter, but we'll get right to it. So um, as I just said, you have this new gig uh, on the Investors Podcast Network. I kind of wanted to start there, you know, I, how, how did that all come about? Sure. What happened, I think, as I remember, and my, my memory is pretty unreliable, but I think about seven years ago, Guy Spear, who I think has been on your show as well, who's an old friend of mine who, who runs a fund called the Aquamarine Fund, introduced me to Stig Brodison and Preston Pish, who uh, had founded the Investors Podcast Network. And this was very early days. And I, I went on a couple of times. I think they did a double, a double episode about this book that I'd written back then called The Great Minds of Investing. It was a very beautiful book. It had these incredible photos by uh, a guy called Michael O'Brien. And then it had these relatively small profiles by me that were, uh, but, but the main thing was his exquisite, exquisite portraits, which were really gorgeous. And so I went on and I talked about that. And, and then when this book, Richard Weiser Happier, came out, uh, Stig very kindly invited me back on. And, and he then, I, I hope I'm not telling tales out of, out of school, we had a really lovely conversation and he sent me a really lovely note afterwards and said, look, I'd really like to spend more time with you. Would you ever consider coming to Denmark on my dime? And we'll just hang out and, and I'll put you up in a hotel nearby. And then COVID struck and I never had time. And I was so busy talking about my book and blathering on uh, that I didn't go. But, but I said to him, I really want to do a podcast. And I said, if there's any way we can collaborate on it, that would be great. And so this really grew out of that, this, this, um, this collaboration. And if, if there's any... If there's any takeaway from it, I, I would say it's that Stig has been incredibly nice for seven years in every, in every contact that I've had with him, just really nice, really warm, generous spirited. And so I've done so many podcasts over the years, but that was one of them where I really built a relationship with the person who'd hosted me. And, and so in a way, it's kind of, 
it's kind of fitting because I, I write about in, in my book this lesson that I learned from Guy Spear, which is the compounding of goodwill. And Guy is a master of this. He's just, he's, he's not only very bright and a very good investor, but he's really decent. And so he's just drawn to him all of these people who are very nice over the years, who are very kind, who react to his form of generosity. And so it was really interesting that his original kindness in introducing me to Sig and Preston led in all of these different ways to this relationship with them. And, and so I, I think one of the things that I'm discovering very belatedly is actually just how powerful that idea of the compounding of goodwill is. That it, you know, most of us are thinking about compounding money and actually what you really want to do, it's like, yeah, you want to compound money, but you also want to compound knowledge like Buffett, who just reads the whole time. And then you also want to compound goodwill by just kind of trying to be relatively decent. And, and I remember Guy saying to me once that part of what happens is that when you start to treat people that way, you, you, you can attract quite a lot of takers. And it takes a while for you to sort of sort through and figure out, oh, actually, that person is really decent. And this person actually is just looking to exploit me. I haven't actually found that, really. I think maybe I'm just naive. But I actually think for the most part, I've I just found that people have been really kind and really helpful. And so there's a there's a sort of living experiment at work here that, that uh, I, I, I'm, I'm exploring myself, whether the compound of goodwill works. Well, I don't know. Here, this is your first experience. I'm going to exploit the hell out of you right now. No, I'm just, I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> well, I, listen, I'm a huge fan of Guy Spear, and I'm very, very thankful and gracious that he spent the time on, on my podcast and also did a keynote uh, for us as well, just sharing his knowledge and insight where we just – he, he's just the best. I, we, had, we had so much fun. I can't wait to talk to him again. And, so so yeah. think of that, Robert. If you think yeah. about that, all over the world, there are people who, whenever you bring up Guy's name, they say, he's the best. He's a really lovely bloke. And that's really interesting. Like mm-hmm. that's, There's something, If p- part of what my book is about is is what, what Monish Pabrai, Guy's very close friend, calls cloning, where there's this idea that you reverse engineer things that better and smarter and wiser people have already figured out, and then you kind of replicate it. This is one of the great things to replicate from Guy because he, he started off when he was trying to be really kind to everyone and really decent, and he would write thank you letters to everyone. I think he started off about 20 or so years ago in a slightly cynical way. I mean, I've been friends with Guy for 20-something years, so I've really known him a long time. Uh, and I think he thought, well, Robert Cialdini writes these things about influence that say, well, there's this um, uh, there's this habit that we have of reciprocation. And so if you treat someone really well, so you give them a present, they then want to reciprocate. They feel warm towards you. And so Guy thought, well, look, if I want to be a really successful person, let me, let me treat everyone really well, and then they'll reciprocate. They'll feel in my debt. And, then, and so there was a little bit of an agenda. Um, you know, it was smart and a little bit cunning and strategic, at least the way he, he tells it, because he's very honest and self-effacing about these things. And then what he found is that over time, when you treat people that way, you actually start to feel happier yourself because you're surrounded by people who are happy to see you because they, they just feel, feel warmth towards you because you've treated them decently. And so what happened to him is that he, he started to become addicted to the good feelings engendered by his good behavior, which was then reciprocated by other people. I, I, I think there's a kind of deep, there's a, there's a, there's a deep insight there that all, all of us would, would do well to rip off if we, if, you know, take, take advantage of guys 20 year experiment. 
No, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the, it's one of those things where it's like you, it's like you tell yourself that uh, I'm, I want to be this way. And just by accident, it, because you just, that, just that repetition, repetition, continuing to do it, you end up that way, you know, and it becomes true. So you start off it's like, it, hypnoti- it, it, hypno- it's like hypnosis. It's uh, like Arno- hypnosis. Uh, Arnold Vandenberg talks about that in the, yeah. at the very end of your book about exactly. the idea of hypnosis, where he just told himself every single day, "I'm going to be this. I'm going to do this." You know, and yeah. and exactly did it. I think there's also there's this idea from Robert Cialdini of commitment and consistency bias, which is when you when you're out there and you state something in public, um, it's then very hard to step away from it which can be a real problem, right? Because if you talk about your investments, for example, and you boast to your neighbors about how brilliant your investment in some stock is, then, then it's very hard to change your mind when it collapses and, or you discover that you're wrong. But there's also this good side to commitment and consistency bias, which is if you're out there saying, I believe in the compounding of goodwill, um, then the next time you want to shout at someone, you're like, oh God, I better not do that. And so I, I find this a lot because I, I keep talking about the importance of kindness and then I'll suddenly realize that I'm being kind of um, appalling to, um, you know, my family. And I'll be like, God, really, am I, can I be this bad tempered and still claim to be obsessed with the company of goodwill and kindness and the like? And so, so it, the fact that I've stated this publicly actually forces me to try to change my worst behavior. It's not quite. Also, yet, but but uh, and, yeah, but at the same time, like you can't deny your your own human nature, right? Like you're, yeah. And it's totally okay to feel the feelings. You know, I have a two year old daughter, and you know, my wife and I have been very conscious about like making sure that she, you know, not just saying it's okay, you know, when something yeah. happens, you know, really very consciously saying like, you know, when she throws her water off the table or something, it's saying. Oh, did or did you throw that off because you're frustrated? You don't want to sit here anymore. Like just the, acknowledging the feeling because yeah. those feelings aren't going to go away magically. Mm-hmm. The idea of frustration and mad or temper, all that stuff. You know, it's just a matter of recognizing it from a young age. I guess you know, it's I don't know. It's something I think about a lot when I when I look at our, my yeah. two year old and and how we're raising her. No, it's actually it's a really profound and important idea that I, I I've been thinking a lot about lately because um. I, I've been studying. Sorry, we're getting way afield from investing, but but I've been. But it's all related, as, as Charlie Munger would say. It's all one damn relatedness after another. I think um, me and Guy on our pod talked about like I think we talked about a part like partying or like. Oh, that's good. Okay, or, so, or but, some other social media platform for like the first he, fifteen minutes. He, so it's all he, good. Ha- <laughs> he has an even more scattered uh, and digressive <laughs> mind than I do, which is um, and and so yeah. But this idea that you raise, Robert, about about actually recognizing the emotions is, I, I think, critically important. And I think it actually relates to investing into everything else. And I, I've been studying these Tibetan Buddhists recently over the last year or so, I'd say, but I think are very profound. And one of the things they talk about is that you, when these emotions or these negative thought patterns, for example, come up, in, mo- most people flee from them. They, they deny them delude themselves, repress them, suppress them, or maybe they project onto somebody else because it's too unbearable to face our own flaws or our own negative thought patterns or the like. And so what these, these Tibetan Buddhists, like this great teacher, Sokni Rinpoche, will talk about is he, he, he says, 
he calls these things, you, these recurring kind of negative thought patterns or emotions, your beautiful monsters. And he says, you, you, want to, you want to befriend your beautiful monsters. And so, and so if, say, anger comes up or hatred or greed or envy or self-pity, any of these things, which, you know, believe me, are a pretty big part of my personality, you, you don't deny it. You look at it and you say, ah, okay, okay, uh, there, there you are. I was waiting for you. Yeah, I see you. And, and he has this thing called handshake practice where, say, if you're meditating, but you can do this anytime, um, when this stuff comes up, you just sort of pause and you recognize it instead of, instead of repressing it. And I actually think there's great profundity in that because we weren't taught when we were growing up to deal with these negative emotions and, and, and thought patterns. And if you don't deal with them, they kind of come up and bite you in the behind, especially I've never used the word behind, but since you told me about your swearing policy, uh, now, now I'm really sensitive. Uh, uh, they come up and bite you on the derriere, Robert. And so you can um, say ass, ass is fine. No, but I can't say it that way because I'm oh, English. Right. It would have to be ass. Um, <laughs> so, so these negative, these negative thought patterns or emotions, your beautiful monsters are going to come up and bite you in the, in the ass um, if you don't deal with them. And so, for example, if you think about it, if you're an investor and you're really just destroyed by the fact that your next door neighbor or your idiot brother-in-law has just made 10 times his money off Tesla or Bitcoin or something, and you're just so riled up and you're a kind of disciplined, um, long-term value investor and you're quietly tucking your money away in sensible, undervalued things, uh, you're, if, if you don't acknowledge the jealousy and the envy um, and the impatience and the desire to get rich quick, it, you don't know how it's going to victimize you. And so I think in every area of life, the ability actually to pause and say, ah, okay, but yeah, I'm feeling that. I'm feeling melancholy. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling jealous. I'm feeling resentful is, is profoundly important and, and actually weirdly liberating. And I, I think having grown up in England, we, we, we were not good at dealing with our emotions. I mean, if you if you watch Downton Abbey or something, you know those guys those guys are not masters of dealing with their emotion, and that's the TV version. I'd like to take a quick second to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Quarter. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world, straight from your pocket for no cost. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. The first step on this journey is to let you, the user, interact with the company's content while you're listening. Visit your app store of choice and try it out today by searching for Quarter, and that's Q-U-A-R-T-R. Now back to the show. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, you bring up a really interesting point and I, and I, you know, I, I don't like to speak for everyone, you know, I can only speak for myself and that, you know, when I go through that or I experience a negative thought or something like that, you know, it, it, it's taken, I mean, I, I'll, I've talked about it before. Like I I've been going to therapy for years, mm-hmm. you know, and I absolutely love it. In fact, anybody who thinks that they're just, they're great, they're doing great. It's probably the best time to go to therapy to really explore how can you well, is there ways to become even better and more understanding of things that you had no idea about yourself? And, 
you know, when I, when I think about, you know, those negative thoughts, I also like to play the game of like, well, how can, you know, I use that to drive me towards being better. Like, why am I, why am I, am I jealous about this? Like, well, rather than, you know, doing something that's negative for the universe or for myself or to my family, well, how can I turn that into a positive? Right. I don't know if that's something that you think about. as Oh, very, very much. I I was reading something by David Hawkins the other day, who's had a, a big impact on me who, who wrote books like power versus force, but also wrote a book called letting go that I love that I think that deals with very similar issues to this, how to deal, how, how to kind of abide with these negative emotions and thoughts. Cause, cause um, we, cause we like that. There's a number of times where I don't, and I didn't mean to cut you off, but like yeah. it's, it, it, you know, we talk about this a lot about acknowledging, you know, your feelings and, but like, sometimes it's almost like when you, when you think about investing where you can recognize that pattern, you know, yeah. but then what do you do with it? Right. And it's the same thing when yeah. you think about psychology. It's like, all right, well, what do I, what do I do with that? Great. I know I'm jealous. Thanks. Thanks, Brian. That's, Pre- appreciate that's an that. important question. And I, I remember once I was seeing a, a friend of mine, a spiritual teacher, actually, who funnily enough used to work at Goldman Sachs and then became a, a teacher of Kabbalah, which is an un, unusual career path. He's a wonderful guy. Sounds like went, a, that sounds like a nice Hollywood story. Right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> he, he's an extraordinary man. My friend, Marcus, I, I, I once, I, I've, had some revelation about, um, I think it was about self-pity. I was thinking about it and I was like, God, there's so much self-pity there. What do I do with that? And I remember asking him and he said, you know, I'd gone through a difficult period and I was like, God, poor me. And, you you know, but I had so many good things in my life. And I remember him saying to me, just sit with the pain of it. And it was an extraordinary thing, like to sit, the, the idea that something painful would come up and you would sit in the pain of it. And I don't think I did it very successfully, but I think one, when when I study something like these teachings from Sokni Rinpoche or these teachings from David Hawkins in Letting Go, which I think is a really important book, they're, they're helping and they're pushing me towards something that I think is very helpful. And one of the things that Hawkins does, I, I would really encourage people to read Letting Go. And there's a there's a mechanism that he describes in chapter two, which I've read countless times, where he's saying, okay, so... So you, you abide with this pain, whatever it is, whatever this negative thought pattern or emotion is, whether it's fear, anger, hatred, jealousy, whatever, and you, you recognize it and you let go of the desire to judge it or suppress it or change it. And there's something really interesting about that, that you're, you're actually letting go of the judgment. And I, there was something also from Sokni Rinpoche where he said, you just want to sit in the fluidity, and the flux of all of these things changing in life without judging. And so I think one of the things that some of these kind of Buddhist gurus figured out is just not judging everything, just being aware of it without judging it. And I, I do think it, it's tricky because I do think there's this other way of dealing with it where you actually want to change it. And so you recognize something, you're like, no, I'm not going to do that. And, 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 and you sort of vow not to do it or whatever. And so I think there are different ways of tackling the same task. You can come at it from totally different, um, totally different directions. But, but what David Hawkins says, which I think is a very interesting observation. And he, he was a psychotherapist at the biggest therapy practice in New York before he came, became an enlightened mystic. Uh, what he says is that the, the resistance to the emotion is actually what keeps it going. It's what gives it energy. And so when you stop resisting it and you're like, oh yeah, jealousy. Okay. Yeah. Wow. My neighbor just made a killing. That bastard. I can't believe it. Then, 
then sorry, I violated your swearing policy already. Um, then, uh, <laughs> then you're uh, you're never going to forget this now, Robert. And and so I think when you when you don't resist, there's something very powerful there. Um, it's in some in some ways, I think what Hawkins is suggesting is that the guilt and the shame over our over our poor behavior or poor characteristics or uh, the, the, that the guilt and the shame are actually not very helpful. And so if you think about it, when we were growing up, we were, con- we, were, we were disciplined by our teachers or our parents or coaxed in a particular direction when they were exasperated with us, which was a lot in my case, by um, making us feel guilty or scaring us or um, showing us that there would be consequences. So I think we internalized a lot of fear and guilt and shame, sense that we weren't living up to uh, what we were supposed to be. And so in a sense, it's, it's, it's reversing some of those tendencies that we adopted very early on, which were probably really good tendencies, right? I mean, you, you want to keep your kids safe. You want to make sure they don't screw up and that they actually turn up for school and they don't swear at their teacher and uh, you know spit in class and stuff like that and um, actually do their homework. And so the fear sort of works a little bit and the guilt works a little bit. And then, and then you grow up and you're like, well, that kind of worked. Whenever I made myself feel guilty or I beat myself up, it kind of worked. Like I did get through this thing that I didn't want to do. So you adopt these habits that work, um, but they're very fragile and they're very limited. I, I remember once talking to Tony Robbins about this because I became kind of friendly with Tony over the years. And, and I said, so yeah, I can see that I'm really motivated by fear and terror of failure and mediocrity and stuff like that and, and, and anxiety and desire to succeed and show people. And I'm like, if I, if I dismantle all of that, then what the hell am I left with? And, and he sort of was silent. I'm like, service? And he's like, yep. He just sort of nodded. And it's like, oh, God, really? I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to have to try to be more altruistic. But I think, but I think if you look at it, in sort of David Hawkins terms, trying to serve others and help others and be honest and be truthful and be more joyful and stuff that as uh, in his terminology, that would calibrate much higher than shame, guilt, fear, stuff like that. So, so I think I was, I'm sorry, this is such a long winded digression, but it's actually, I, I think kind of important that what, what you want to do is be filling your life with things like, um, trying to be kinder, trying to be more truthful, trying to be more loving, trying to be more sharing, uh, trying to be more honest. And that, that stuff um, makes you feel so much better than beating yourself up and feeling guilty and, and being anxious and stuff. So, so those things work, except they leave you depleted and weak. And so, and even as I say it, I feel actually depleted and weak. Whereas if I talk to you about Guy Spear and the compounding of goodwill, you're like, oh, you sort of, you actually, you feel it physically in your body. I think you feel a bit more energized. And, and so, so you're trying gradually to shift your behavior and your intention to, to these sort of slightly higher um, motives. And if you do that as well, if you think about it with your money and your investing, if you say, well, I'm going to make enormous amounts of money so that I can impress people and buy myself a Ferrari and a big house and have a big extension on my house, you know, and a swimming pool and stuff. Um, that's fine. And it can motivate you up to a certain point. But I think if you say, yeah, I'm going to live well, and I'm 
going to be financially independent, financially free and secure, but I'm also going to use the money to help other people. That actually, that's going to lead to a better and happier life because I think there's a kind of, there's a higher intention to it. And so I think just this awareness that the higher intention actually kind of helps you is for, for me has been pretty clarifying. Is it, you know, even though I don't live up to this stuff most of the time, at least it shows you what the playing field it is. And you're like, oh, okay, so I, I should try to be more truthful, try to be, try to be kinder, try to be more, try to be more sharing. And, and listen, it, like some folks could be listening to this and like, all right, well, this is easy for, you know, some folks to say, and, you know, when you're in a position like Guy or Monish or, or even yourself, you know, where like, okay, they have a bit more um, where they can give or, or, mm. you know, but, but even if you're not of those means at, at this point in your life, like that doesn't mean that you can't give back in certain ways. Right. You know, uh, there's yeah. volunteering your time, you know, there's, there's things you could do. I mean, this goes without saying it's such a simple idea, but I think that all, I think sometimes when like folks hear that, or even when I hear it, sometimes I even sometimes conflated with, ah, oh, well, he's, he's got, you know, He's got he's got plenty of money to, to spread yeah. around and give to certain things, but it, but then that's one of those things where you have to check yourself and be like, well, so what? Like, even if you're not as wealthy as those folks, like you can still get back with your your time, your energy. You know, maybe not necessarily monetarily, yeah. but that's okay. You no, know? it's a, it's a very important point, and I, I've I've thought about this a lot um, because I would look at these famous investors and these very wealthy people that I write about, and and there's a part of me that would get jealous about it, and I would think, well, yeah, I I would. I would live by an inner scorecard and I would be more generous and I would be, uh, uh, you know, more high-minded if I had their money, because then I could, you know, I wouldn't just be in survival mode the whole time. And there is this, and there is this line from Ben Franklin, who was a great hero of Charlie Munger's Warren Buffett's partner, where, where Ben Franklin said, an empty sack can't stand straight. And it's a very profound idea that when you feel empty, it's actually really hard to be sharing. Uh, it's hard to be moral. It's hard to be ethical. But I think, um, I, I remember Tony Robbins saying at one point that if it's something along the lines of if, you, if when you have, you know, $10,000, you can't give away $100, then when you have $10 million, you're never going to give away 100000 you know. And, and so it's not, it's not actually about the amount. Um, it's about the behavior. And, it, and it's funny, actually, Sorry, if I'm going off on a weird digression, but but if you look at the Old Testament, that when you look at the the word for tithing, it's maaser, which means one in ten, and so it's literally you're scraping off one in ten, uh, a tenth of your money, and you're just saying, yeah, that's not for me. And it's not saying you should give this amount, you know, in terms of dollars or shekels or whatever it was in those days. It's literally it's a tenth a tenth of what you make is not for you. Um, and I, I remember having these discussions with someone and being like, so is it before tax or after tax? And he's like, I think you're missing the point, dude. It's not <laughs> really about that. Um, but I remember once having this discussion with Sir John Templeton, where he said to me, you know, this is a guy who was pro- probably the greatest stock picker of the international stock picker of the 20th century. And he once said to me that um, the tithing is probably the, the greatest investment a family can make. And if you do it consistently for 10 years, you know, you can't fail to get rich. I remember hearing this and just thinking, God, what a proselytizing, self-righteous, sanctimonious Puritan this guy is. And then here I am all these late years later. And I'm like, oh yeah, he was probably right. Uh, but I do think it, the, the reason it helps actually, and, I, I, and I, I, I'm not saying that I, 
I tithe in any sort of um, disciplined way. I do try to give away money, but I don't. I, I'm, I'm not. I, I'm. I'm not very specific about you know giving away ten percent or anything. But, um, but I think part of the reason why it helps to give away money is that you're then not controlled by your fear of being without money, and so I think there's something about breaking that spell so that you don't instead of constantly clinging to your money and thinking. God, if I only had twice as much, I'd be okay. Then I'd be free. You let go of that very tight grasp. And so I think there's a kind of freedom that comes from giving the money away. And, and there's also something I think that's energetically good about it, much as that sounds sort of very woo-woo. And No, uh, I, feel, I, I feel that. No, I, I, yeah. I, I, I've donated, you know, to many different causes over the years. And I, whether it's, you know, a little amount or a lot, like it, it feels... Good. And it, but it's never the amount that is the part that feels good. The part that feels yeah. good is the act of giving, you know, because it's yeah. a cause that either I care about or someone I care about cares about. And I want to support yeah. that, you know? And yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, at the end of the day, I much rather donate my time to like going out there and doing and doing stuff rather than just giving the money. You know, I, if you had to have a spectrum of good, like at least for me, that's something, but then, then the so lazy that I'd rather give money so that I don't have to, <laughs> have to do anything, but I, but I, you're, you're more energetic. I can see uh, I mean, moving uh, around. Uh, we'll see, man. I'm, I got a two-year-old and another on the way in a, in a very uh, short time. So, so I'm about to get worn out pretty quick here. <laughs> so I know mine are 23 and 20. So we, we have different issues. Like yesterday, I was looking for my my car keys and I was like really despondent. I'm like, I have no idea where my car keys are. Not only do I not know where my car keys are, but I was locked out of the house because it has my house key on it. And I was locked out of my office, which is where I'm doing this interview with you. So I'm like, I'm not even going to be able to get into the interview. And it's like, I've got so much stuff to deal with. And then my my wife, who's a very charitable and kind person, goes and, and searches everywhere for the keys and realizes that our son has has borrowed the car and left my keys in the other car. Uh, in inside the car in the doorway, and so you're suddenly, you know, so so instead of dealing with the problems you have as a with a two year old child, you're dealing with like who's got the keys to my car and how am I going to get into the house and the office? Uh, the pro- so it's a whole pro- different set of issues. The, the problems with just your own mind. <laughs> so you know, another thing I wanted to talk about that I'm I personally am kind of jealous of, and not kind of I'm I'm flat out jealous of, and I'm and I feel like. I don't want to project onto you as well, but as someone who's interviewed some of the greatest thinkers of our time, you I, there must be a kernel of it as well. Aren't you jealous of these folks that can distill these just complex, intense topics into just the most simple, simple things? I, I can't help but feel jealousy sometimes, or for the most part, because I'm like, God, how do they do that? Like that's yeah, it's so an extraordinary brilliant. Talent. I, I think about that a lot with Joel Greenblatt because I'm I'm preparing to interview yeah. him tomorrow for this We Study Billionaires podcast and and um, the sorry not to sound like a shill advertising myself but that that's what I'm doing shill away where, it's my, fine where my mind is but the um, but one of the things I write about in my book about Greenblatt is about this this ability to simplify everything and so one one of the things. That happened to me is I, I was sitting at his house in the Hamptons interviewing him sort of out, outside his house looking at this beautiful view of the the Atlantic Ocean and and I'm asking him about the secret of investing and he's like look it's just so simple you just um you you value a business and then you buy it for much less than it's worth and that's it and that 
that ability to synthesize enormous amounts of information into something that's kind of the pure essence of what he does is a very beautiful and important skill. And, and, and he did the same thing then when he wrote this book, The Little Book That Beats the Market, where he said, look, you can take the entire complexity of investing and reduce it to two metrics where you can say, you use these two metrics to buy stocks that are cheap, which is kind of the essence of what Ben Graham figured out, and good, which is the essence of what Buffett figured out. And so just with these two metrics, you're, you're combining the distilled essence of Buffett and Munger, uh, uh, sorry, of Buffett and, and Graham, but actually Munger as well, because Munger was the one who pushed um, Buffett towards buying better businesses instead of just buying cigar butts, which is the, the term for the kind of crappy companies that Ben Graham used to, used to buy, but they were, were so cheap that they were good buys. And so that ability to distill very complex things into something very simple is a, is a kind of master principle for life. And so I wrote about this at some length in the book because it, it struck me that you, you, you need to be able to simplify because we live in such a complex world where everything is so confusing and so overwhelming and there's so many choices and there are so many, um, there's so many people trying to sell rubbish to you that's actually bad for your health, uh, your financial health, your physical health, your mental health. Uh, I mean, I was talking to my son the other day about TikTok because I'm like, why, why is my Facebook feed suddenly full of all these appalling videos? And, and he was saying, yeah, yeah, no, it's totally evil. It's like they, they find like these, these beautiful teenage girls and they get them to dance. And then, you know, it's like, it's terrible for you. And, they're, and, and it's suddenly filling your feed. And so there are all of these ways in which society is kind of tempting you. It's like, you know, the extra donut, the extra piece of toast with, with honey, which I have about 23 times a day. Um, you know, all of these lures to do things that aren't good for you. And, and, that, and they give you kind of short-term hits of dopamine, you know, whether it's getting lost on, your, your Twitter or Facebook feed or, um, you know, reading the latest biased news reports that, that spread kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of disagreement that doesn't need to, where there doesn't need to be disagreement, kind of unhealthy disagreement and polarization. There are all of these ways in which you, as, as Guy Spear would say, your, your emotional chain is getting yanked in all of these different directions. And so, if you have a few simple principles that are, uh, that are approximately true over time, that, are, that give you a kind of true north, whether it's in investing or any other area, it keeps you on the straight and narrow. So, so, so I started to think a lot about this and, 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 and to try to distill some of those truths in the book. And so one of, one of the things, when, when it comes to investing, you think about something like, like indexing. And so I had interviewed Jack Bogle many years ago, maybe 22 years ago or something, when uh, you know, he, he had founded Vanguard, right, which now manages over $7 trillion. And, and he explained to me, look, this was the most simple idea ever. He, he said, basically, given that actively managed funds have high fees uh, and also incur quite a lot of taxes and the like, uh, if you buy an index fund that has extremely low fees, on average, you're going to do better uh, over time. And he said, it's not complicated. And that simple observation 
was pilloried at the start. Like people said, no, this is an exercise in mediocrity. Like, why would you want to settle for mediocre returns? And yet over time, it's proven, it's proven to be incredibly powerful. And so whether you index or not, you want to say, okay, I know that, that high expenses are going to erode my returns massively over time. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, if I, if I buy an actively managed fund, it's got to have a low expense ratio. And I have to not be trading a lot because I don't want to incur high taxes or high transaction costs. And so it's these simple ideas that, that carry tremendous weight. And, and you can apply that in every area of life. So you can say, for example, there's a beautiful idea from David Hawkins. I have kind of posted up on, on my wall near my desk that says, um, simple kindness to oneself and, and all that lives is the most transformational force of all. And so every time I'm getting confused and I'm thinking, well, should I study uh, Tibetan Buddhism or Kabbalah or Stoicism or Hinduism or whatever? And I'm like, I, you know, and I get, I fall down all these rabbit holes. And I just can say, uh, let me just try to be kinder. I can just be kinder. And then you can say, well, let me also try to be kinder to myself. And and because that's important too, because again, it gets back to the empty bag, bag can't stand straight. If you're if you're cruel to yourself, then you kind of feel lousy. You don't really want to be kind to other people. And so these simple rules, like the compounding goodwill, um, the power of simple kindness, power of good habits that compound over time, uh, the power of reducing your expenses, the power of avoiding what what Munga calls standard stupidities. These simple ideas actually turn out have tremendous weight. And what's really fun about the life we live is being able to have that axiom and those simple rules, and then going and looking at what the Kabbalists say, you know, the Kabbalists say, yeah. the Tao says, you know, I, th- that that's what makes it so interesting because everybody has a different spin. Ultimately, I'd say more or less all major religions kind of come to the same thing, you know. I mean, almost, almost exactly the same so, thing. Astonishing, because I spent so much of my time reading this stuff, and so I was, I was, I was studying. There's a, there's a great um, Hindu sage uh, whose name I'll, I'll gobble, so I won't, I, I, I won't even try it. But um, he wrote a book called something like "Who Am I?" That's a very short pamphlet, basically, and. Um, you, I was reading this the other day, and there's a there's a section of it that's so beautiful. It's just so so identical to the teachings from Kabbalah and the teachings from Buddhism and other areas. It's 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 really profoundly lovely. There was something I, I was reading it to my daughter where basic basic. Well, it's very similar to Hawkins because Hawkins also says it's it's not just that you're staying with those negative emotions and thought patterns. There's a there is a sort of a, a, a kind of a spiritual or religious component talking where it's like you're surrendering this stuff to your creator and you're saying all right so i surrender my my hatred and my anger and my jealousy and all that like this this is on you and and in psalms it talks about the same thing it says cast your burden upon the lord for he will never forsake you right and so it's like this idea of casting i'm giving this to you right i can't handle this and so then i'm reading this this hindu sage and he said it's it's he said, give your burden to God, because he said, basically, once you're on the train, like, why would you, why would you carry your luggage on your head when you, you're already on the train? Like, just, just sort of give it up to the train. I, I'm putting this in an ugly way, but it was, it was a beautiful image for me because I'd been in India with Monish Pabrai for this book, and uh, we went on this all-night train ride. 
And there was this incredible porter with this exquisite sort of luxuria, luxuriant mustache who carried these suitcases on his head. And so I had this image of this, 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 this Indian porter with this enormous load on his head. And, and here's this Hindu sage saying, yeah, you're on the train, just stop carrying the burden on your head. And so I think there is some, um, again, I'm not, I'm not really trying to proselytize here. I just think there's a, there's a beauty when you find the same truths going through multiple spiritual paths. It makes you think, ah, there's probably something about that. And so it makes me think instead of, I, 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 would have, I would have rolled my eyes at myself for, the, for this many years ago. So I'm, I, I, I'm, a, you know, some people will roll their eyes at me, but, but I, I do think this idea of letting go and surrendering this stuff. And as my son once said to me, this is beyond my pay grade. Just <laughs> saying like, I, I can't handle this on my own, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to be a better person, but I'm, I'm actually surrendering certain things. And, the, and it's been curious to me that there, there are a lot of great fund managers who you would think are these super cerebral, super rational, super logical people who would actually have very little time for anything spiritual or mystical. And I actually find that's not true. There are, there are some who are totally that way, but a surprising number of them are quite interested in these spiritual ideas. And so, so I came across this great book, The Surrender Experiment, from a, a wonderful hedge fund manager called Yen Liao. And that, again, explores the same sort of idea of, of just surrendering certain things. And so this guy, Michael Singer, who wrote that book, he would just say, um, I don't really, I, I, instead of worrying about what Michael Singer wants to do, I'm just kind of surrendering these decisions to the universe on the basis that the universe knows better than I do. And so he would keep going against his own desires to do things that kind of helped other people. Absolutely. There's a couple different rabbit holes I want to go down, but I want to continue along this idea of simplicity because for yeah. me, it's, it's, do you think it's, it's innate or is it a skill that can be learned? I don't know. I, I look at someone like Joel Greenblatt and I think he has, it has to be and he has, he has an innate ability to come up with these mouse traps. This is how I think about it when it comes to investing. He he keeps creating these really good mouse traps. So he's like, this will work. This 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 is a good way to solve the puzzle of how to invest. And he keeps inventing different mouse traps. And so so he clearly has a temperamental and an intellectual ability to play this game and to figure out different solutions. And, and so he's improved over the years. I mean, it's like, it's like working a particular muscle, right? So the more you learn and the more patterns you see, the better you get, uh, hopefully anyway. Um, so there is, there is a learned element of it. Um, but there's also, there's also an aspect of it playing to his particular strengths. There are things that he can see that I can't, but then again, there, there are things that play to my talents that don't play to other people's. And so weird, weird as some of our conversation may sound to some people, the ability to, to read lots of different things and to say, ah, this relates to this, which relates to this, which relates to this, and say, so it's probably true because it runs through all of these different parts. That's, that's a that's partly learned, that's partly developed, but it's also partly because I probably have a crazy brain that's very, you know, 
right hemisphere dominated. And so it's, I'm less good at the, the linear kind of left hemisphere kind of processes um, than, a, than an accountant would be. Um, uh, so so there, is, there is a difference in the wiring, but there's also this element of building the muscle. And, and so the, the takeaway from it, which really comes from Charlie Munger, Buffett's partner, is that, as he would say, if you're five foot three, you don't really want to become a professional basketball player. You, you want to choose games that play to your talents and your interests. And this sounds kind of um, trite and facile and like a little bit jokey, but actually it's really profoundly important that, that one, of, one of the characteristics of the greater investors is that they consistently pick games that they can win. And that's actually something that all of us can apply in our own lives. So it's not that I'm ever going to have uh, Joel Greenblatt's ability to crack the code of investing and distill this very complex game into a few simple understandings. But I need to understand that just as he plays this game that he's optimized for by his temperament and his intellect and his knowledge and his interest, I have to play games that I'm, I'm optimized for in terms of my temperament, intellect, talents, and the like. And that's really helpful to know because it's kind of torture to be doing things either that you don't care about or that you're not talented at. And I think, I think when you look at someone like Ray Dalio, part of what he's done with Bridgewater is, is he's, he's put together people with very complementary and very different skills. And they're very aware of this person is someone who thinks in this way. And this person is someone who, you know, has no credibility in this area. Don't go to this person for, for insight on this. And so, so again, it's that, it's that ability to look at yourself honestly, to look at your not only your emotions, as we were talking about before, or your thought patterns, but actually your, your talents and your temperament and say, okay, uh, given, given who I am, let me not delude myself. Let me play this game and not this game. That, that's really helpful. Absolutely. I think about that quite a bit as, I, as I've gotten older, you know, yeah. because it's something hard to understand when you're, I mean, there's people that do and, and, you know, power to them. But like, for me, I, I always remember thinking back in my, when I was my twenties or early twenties, especially in my teens, like, what am I good at? Like, yeah. I'm decent at baseball, but I don't think I'm going to be a professional baseball player. Um, <laughs> you know, or yeah. And I mean, what I, would you do if you weren't paid for it? Right. And so I suddenly realized I was looking through um, some of Joe Greenblatt's um, material on his website. So I, I knew looking, I was going to be a good podcast host, by the way, because I haven't gotten actually paid for that until very recently in terms of advertising. Good. So, yeah, that's, <laughs> so good. that's something I've always been very good conscious pleasure. of. But, yeah, so I, but sorry, so I, to me too. Oh, no, don't worry. So I was looking at his website and I'm looking at this particular fund and I'm like, ah, that's what he's doing. He's found a different mousetrap. And I'm like, how does this one work? And I suddenly start looking at all of the... Um, the documents for it, the prospectus and stuff. And I suddenly realized I've fallen into this rabbit hole because I'm actually profoundly interested. I'm like, oh, it's a clever mousetrap. That's what Greenblatt's up to. And, um, and so I, I would do that for pleasure. And I happen actually to be doing it to prepare for the interview. 
And and so you want to have you want to have this really um, a powerful filter, I think, where you're where you're asking yourself, does this play to my strengths? Does this play to my my interests? Do I have a competitive advantage here? And I, I remember once having this discussion with um, there's a there's a famous financial columnist um, Jason Zweig who, who's a, a columnist at the Wall Street Journal. He's an old friend of mine, former colleague of mine. And for some reason, I, I can't remember. I, I guess I was working on this book, and I was telling him some of the people who who I'd been interviewing. And he wrote me an email that I ended up quoting in the book, where he he said, "When you look at people like Buffett, Munger, and Bill Miller, who I write about a lot, he said these are people who don't." waste a second, don't waste a minute on things that they're not good at or really interested in. And he said, that's really hard to do, to have that self-discipline. And, and, and when I, and, and that, I think his term for it was also that self-honesty that they know what they're good at and they're not going to play another game. And, and when I went to interview Bill Miller, who had the, the, greatest record as a mutual fund manager for many, many years, probably the most successful mutual fund manager of his generation, and then and then blew up catastrophically during the financial crisis, and then has had this unbelievable return to glory, incredible return to glory. Um, I spent a couple of days with him for this book, both at his home and his office in Maryland. And there was one point where I realized, oh, he's structured his life, so he's doing nothing that doesn't play to his interests and talents. Like he would come into the office wearing the same jeans and black t-shirt every day. He had nothing scheduled. He was, he, he had totally empty schedule. So he could read, he could think about the stock market. He, he read an enormous number of books. He was working with his son and um, uh, this, this partner of his, Samantha, who he'd, um, he'd actually met her on a date something like 20 years earlier when I'd gone with him to his alma mater and he'd met her while, while talking to that class. And so he was working with people he liked, um, friends and family. He had the same assistant that he'd had at Leg Mason like 20 something years earlier when I'd first interviewed him. And so he'd structured his life in this really interesting way that was true to him. And, and it was clear that he didn't even like pump his own gas anymore for his car. He didn't fly on a on a regular commercial flight. He flew private. Like there was nothing. This was what the money had actually enabled him to do was to do nothing that he didn't want to do. And there was a, there was a, beautiful, there was a beautiful thing that um, he told me someone, someone had said to him, will you give a keynote speech at this event? And he said, uh, yeah, what's the dress code? And they said, well, you'd need to wear a tuxedo. And he's like, no, nah, I threw out my tuxedo and I'm never buying another one. And I thought that was really wonderful and really telling that he had decided I'm not the sort of person who's dressing up in a tux and going to do this kind of song and dance. Uh, I'm not doing that anymore. And I, yeah. I don't know, there was, a, there was a moment where we were walking into his garden in, um, in Maryland and we were walking towards this beautiful sculpture where he said, I, I, my ashes are going to be scattered here when I die. And, um, and I said to him, God, I realize you've, you've got to this point in your life where you're totally aligned to who you are. It's like, it's like Miller unbound. Like you're not having to report to a board anymore, like you did at Lake Mason earlier in your career. You're uh, you're investing the way you want to invest. Uh, you read what you want to read. You're in control of your time, as he put it. I'm in control of 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 my time and the content of my time. 
And, and so I said to him, yeah, you, you really got to this incredible position where you're just in control of all of this stuff. You're true to yourself. And he said, yeah, that's the best. And I realized what an important goal this is to be somehow deeply aligned with, with who you are in the truest sense and, and what you care about and what you're good at. And, and this again gets back, Robert, to your question before about, well, if you were, when it comes to charity and the like, it's a whole lot easier if, if you're rich already um, or seriously rich. And that's true. I, I think if there's one thing I've been jealous of over the years, increasingly it's not so much the, the luxuries. It's not, uh, you know, I don't really, I've flown on a few private planes with these people and it's pretty cool. I kind of like it, but I'm still kind of scared of flying. And, and it doesn't make that much difference. And it's like you never quite eat quite an, enough or drink quite enough on the private plane to, you know, you know it's still, you have a glass of wine and you're like, nah, that's enough. And I, I ate enough peanuts and enough of a sandwich. You know, it's, it's nice, but it's not amazing. But the thing I'm jealous of, if I'm jealous ever, is the, which I am sometimes, is the fact that they live, that their money gives them the ability to live in alignment with who they are. Um, and not all of them do that because sometimes they become so obsessed with the game and so obsessed with the money and with piling up more that they can become prisoners and, and prisoners of the responsibility. And so I, I'm more interested in the ones who actually um, are able to construct their lives in a way that's true to who they are, which, which requires quite a lot of self-awareness. But, but you also... If, if there is a takeaway for the rest of us, I think you also have to say, you don't need that much money to be able to live in a way that's true to who you are. You, you need a certain amount, um, but you also need to be clear on what the priorities are. So, so, so for me, I, I don't care if I have a fancy car. It just doesn't bother me. I, I literally, I don't think I've ever once taken my car to get it washed uh, in seven, eight years. Um, oh, okay. Well, that's a problem. All right. We got, uh, we, we got to wash your car a little bit. Once in a while, another member of my family will get embarrassed enough that they'll take it, but I just don't care. I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I care about having time to read and having time to think and being able to turn away projects that I don't want to do that I would be inclined to do just for the money. You can read and think at a car wash. I'm that's sorry. true. Sorry, that's a bad, that that's was a bad true. joke. I take that. But back. I don't, but I also, I don't. <laughs> It's really important for me not to work with people I dislike. That's critically right. important for me, like profoundly important. Um, and so I don't think you need to have $10 million to construct a life like that. You might need a million or two. I don't know. It depends where you live. Um, but I think it also requires clarity to know this is, this is what I want to do. And I, I remember Tony Robbins talking about this once and say, talking about how you really have to think about what a beautiful life means to means to you. And for some people, it's going to be three kids and a beautiful yard. And for someone, it's going to be, you know, working for a charity. And for some, it's going to be piling up, you know, um, assets or whatever. You know, it's very different for each of us. It's very idiosyncratic. But one of the great lessons from the greatest investors is that this is a goal. It's to it's to construct a life that's true to who you are in, in the deeper sense. So, so A, you're picking games that you can win, and B, you're trying to construct a life that's true to who you are. And I, and I think you're more likely to be successful when you do that anyway. So there's a, there's a chicken and the egg 
aspect to this where it's like, well, if you, if you, if you're playing games that you can win and you're living in a way that's aligned with your nature and your talents and your temperament and your interests, you're probably going to succeed better anyway. And then you're more likely to be able to afford that sort of lifestyle and that sort of freedom and independence. I think, and the best part, by the way, that was just incredible wisdom. I'm sorry. I took a second to write some of that down. That you know, it's, wisdom. But, I'm an extremely profound man. Uh, yeah, I can, I can very much tell, you know, uh, richer, wiser, happier. Oh, and, yeah. uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know what I've been thinking about actually throughout our whole uh, interview or, or chat here today is, um, you know, like when you're a kid and you just aspire to be that grown up already, like, oh, I get to drive wherever, spend, do all that. You know, that's shifted for me sometimes when I, especially in having done this podcast since 2015 and speaking with, you know, just incredibly insightful folks across, you know, specifically finance and investment, but we talk a lot about life and, and mm. whatnot, but it's like getting to that point where, you know, like you are, or some of these, some of these incredible folks that you've interviewed over the years, it's like, ah, oh, you know, it's, it's, that's, it's that, that analogy goes through my head all the time. It's like, oh, I just want to have that already but that's what makes what i do very fun too at the same time is like i've always just enjoyed the search to become richer wiser yeah. and happier yeah, that's, no, that's always fun to me i i mean that's kind of you to say and it's also important to emphasize having having interviewed a lot of these people it's not like anyone has suddenly cracked it and they right. reach the point where it's like oh now they're happy and everything's sure. blissful and everything's okay and i that was one of the things that i wanted to convey I mean, they are, they are wiser, they are smarter in many cases, but that doesn't immunize them against problems. And, and sure. when I was writing the, the epilogue, um, I wanted to make clear that, that it sounds like such a banal point, but actually it's kind of profound, this, this fundamental Buddhist idea that everyone suffers. And I remember talking about this to someone and them being like, yeah, 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 go cry in your sack of money, you know, like when you tell them about some billionaire who's having a tough time. But actually, I think what was kind of striking is when you write about someone like Bill Miller going through what he went through during the financial crisis, you feel the pain. And I, and I, I mean, I write about him putting on 40 pounds and having 100 people lose their jobs because he made a mistake and just how much torture he was in because of that. Um, and how he was reading Stoic philosophy to deal with it. And likewise, I write about this guy, Jason Karp, who in some ways you would look at it and you would think, God, this guy's got it all. And I remember going to visit him in, in this beautiful skyscraper where he had an office in Manhattan, in midtown Manhattan. And he's kind of this good-looking guy, really nice, really charming guy, very talented, come in the top four in his class at Wharton and he was like a superb squash player and athlete. And, um, and you just look at him and you're like, you know, he's seriously rich, seriously good looking, seriously nice, seriously charming, seriously bright, super well-connected, really interesting guy. And he set up the, I think he'd had the fastest startup of any hedge fund in history. Like he'd raised something like four and a half billion dollars almost instantly. And, and then I realized gradually that he's basically an enormous, enormous pain. And that what was happening was that throughout his life, everything that he had touched had basically turned to gold, that he'd been a star at everything. And then suddenly, having had everyone tell him that he was this kind of giant, his fund starts to do badly for a couple of years. It was really underperforming massively. 
And he starts to realize that there's actually a gap between his process, which was really good and really smart because he's really intelligent and rational, and the outcome, which he didn't really have control over. And so here he was working incredibly hard, applying all of these great principles, and it wasn't working. And everybody could see each month or each week his returns, and they could see that it wasn't working. And he said to me that it was like, um, it was like these, these experiments with, with rats, for example, where they would be in a laboratory and they would get them to pull a lever and either they would get a cookie or some sort of treat or they would get an electric shock. And he said, at a certain point, you induce insanity because they have no control. And he said, that's what it feels like for me to be investing because he said, you just, um, you just keep doing the same thing, but you don't know whether it's going to work out or not. And sometimes you're getting electric shock and sometimes you're getting a cookie. And when I talked to him again, when I was fact-checking the book about a year later, he said to me, look, I was clinically depressed, not only during the period where things were going wrong, but actually during the period where things were going fantastically. Um, and that was really interesting to me. The, that here you look at somebody who seems to have it made. And in fact, he was living in a way that wasn't really in alignment with who he was in a deep sense. Cause part of what, part of what he um, realized is that he was just making bets the whole time. He was just kind of pushing paper around. He wasn't really creating anything. And he was tortured by the, by the lack of control over the outcome that you could work so hard and be so smart and, and do everything right. And still it wouldn't work out. And the randomness of the markets was kind of killing him. And so he then moved to Austin, Texas, which was away from this kind of vortex of, of, um, of Wall Street. And, um, and it, it was a little more health-oriented. It also had lower taxes. And he, um, and he set up a company that was much more true to who he was, which is he, he's always been obsessed with healthy living and healthy eating because he had almost died, I think, in his 20s because he had all of these um, autoimmune issues. And when he, when he went to this very healthy lifestyle um, where nothing had chemicals, uh, his, his health magically uh, recovered totally. And they, they had thought that he was going to go blind initially by the time he was 30. And so now he's created this company that I guess uh, invests in and incubates and nurtures all of these healthy living brands. And he's made a fortune, but he's also aligned with who he is and what, what, what his talents are and what he cares about. And so that was really interesting to me to see that even these people who seem to have it made go through these very difficult periods They'll, where you, you would see people, because I've spent so much time with great investors over the years, I would see when they were suffering in a divorce or I, whether they had a wife who couldn't stand them or I remember someone telling me at one point about a, um, a famous hedge fund manager whose child was um, anorexic. And uh, I remember interviewing Don Yachtman in Austin, who is a billionaire investor, great investor, who is a very unusual guy, uh, a, a Mormon bishop, um, who'd been immensely successful as an investor. And if I remember rightly, he had about eight kids. And one of them had locked-in syndrome, where literally like she, um, she could blink, and that was it. And I remember him saying to me, the, the rain falls on us all. And that was interesting to me because then you start to think, okay, so, so this, isn't, this isn't a done deal where at some point I'm going to become wiser, richer, and happier, and then I'm done. It's a, it's a, um, 
it's a dynamic process. It's not static. And so when you think you've got it nailed and you're like, wow, finally, I have this revelation and I'm happier and I'm kinder and I'm better and I'm wiser, then, then you trip and fall again. Yep. And the knowledge, the knowledge that the most successful and smartest and richest people are also going through these things that you and I go through, these, these disappointments and these fears and these setbacks and these, these public failures and these worries about their kids and stuff like that, that's really helpful because then there's a, just as, just as the Buddhists would say, you're supposed to have a kind of empathetic joy when other people do well. You can also look at other people suffering and say, okay, well, that's part of the human condition. And, and if, um, if they have difficulties, then when I have difficulties, you can say, okay, I can, I can abide with this. And I'm, and I'm very fortunate in all of these different ways. And so I want to be appreciative of all of my gifts in life, but also be aware that this is, this, this is, this is part of the game. There's a, there's a beautiful line from Charlie Munger, who I quote, uh, a lot. I write a whole chapter about Munger in in the book, where he says the the um, the the ability to see life as a series of adversities that give you an opportunity to behave either well or badly. So that's a that's a very good idea. Uh, and he's I didn't quote this part. He said it's a particularly good idea when you get really old because the adversities come thick and fast. And so here's a guy who, in some ways, seems to be the most successful person, right? He's a multi-billionaire, partner for more than 50 years with Buffett, the most successful investor of all time, uh, great philanthropist, brilliantly clever, um, universally admired. Uh, and yet he lost his first child to leukemia, um, then basically lost all his money paying for the medical bills early on in his life. And then his marriage ended. Uh, in divorce, and he was living in a very tough way. L then got remarried, had um, tremendous success, built this this fame, but still lost an eye. Um, it's had all of these health issues, and so so when you look at an enormously successful life, it still includes those things. And and so my conclusion was that you don't want to be focusing so much on the money and the success, and assume that if I get to X amount, then I'm going to be happy. You, you have to work on this inner game, on, on things like resilience, um, equanimity, that that's a key aspect of a happy and successful life. And, and so that, that, that's why um, such a big part of the book is actually about this mental game, this emotional game, because you, you don't want to get to the end and just think that, you maximized your bank account, you became super rich, but you were miserable or you were an asshole or, you know, there's a, there's a wonderful thing where Munger said to me that, that Sumner Redstone, who is this famous tycoon, uh, who's multi-billionaire said all my life, he was an example of what I didn't want to become. Uh, he said, even his wife, wives and kids hated him. Uh, and, uh, and so you want to kind of, and I, I'd never met Sumner Redstone. What do I, what do I know? Um, but I, but, it gives you a clue that what actually is going to make for a successful and an abundant life has to include things like how you behave, whether you behave ethically, what, what your family thinks of you, uh, what your friendships are like, what your colleagues think of you, um, whether you've had an impact in the world for the good, stuff like that. It's whether, whether you have peace of mind. And so, 
for, for me, it's been very, very helpful um, to reorient myself and to give my sen- myself a sense of, oh, that's the game I'm playing. I, I, I don't want to just optimize for making money or getting more clicks on Twitter or YouTube or more downloads for the podcast or whatever. And I, I obsess about all of that stuff. I, I become ridiculously petty-minded and obsessive about those measures, those external measures of, of success and in inverted commas. And I think we all get kind of lured into that stupidity. And it's important in some sense because we, we want to we succeed and make an impact in the world. But you, but you want to study these people, these, these very successful people and say, what, what did they actually figure out about what constitutes a successful and happy and abundant life? Absolutely. Well, uh, you know, I, I look at, you know, the, you have the copy of the book behind you or um, for those watching the video version. And, you know, in, in that last bit that you were just talking about, I was reflecting on the fact that, you know, there's a reason why the book's called Richer, Wiser, Happier, and not just Rich, Wise, Happy, right? Yeah. Is that yeah. it's a constant, it's a constant just process, you know, just <laughs> you're constantly learning, constantly searching for those things. Yeah, and I was thinking about this the other day because I, I interviewed Ray Dalio for, for this podcast, and, and he talks about, um, we, we talked about evolution, and, and he's had tremendous setbacks. Right? He, he lost a, a son a year ago, and he said, look, I, I, I would give up everything, uh, all of my money, not to, not to have gone through that experience, but that's what I went through. And, and he talks about how you have this process in both in the world and in life where there, there is an upward trajectory. Like when you look at the long-term charts showing countries and their, their productivity increasing and their standard of life increasing and their longevity uh, increasing, the, 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 the ages of the population, um, uh, there are tremendous improvements over time, but it's, but it's disrupted by these these periods where everything kind of goes to hell for a while. And so he said on the long-term chart, you actually don't really see those little downturns. Um, but when you're in them, it's really tough. And so I think of something that, that I, I, I quote in the book um, uh, from Matthew McLennan, where he says, you, you have to position yourself to, to participate in the forward march of mankind, but also to survive the dips. And that, that to me is a really profound idea that you're, um, in the long run, um, things do tend to get better, um, but you have, to, you have to stay in the game. And that, again, is one of the great lessons from, from the greatest investors is you, you, you don't want to kind of shine brilliantly and then, you know, go up in flames like some meteor. You want to... Um, you want to have sustained success both in the markets and in life over decades. And so that requires you to survive the dips. And so, but, but knowing that life is going to have these dips is really critical and, and that that's just, that's just part of the game and that you, you have to, again, you have to, as we were talking about at the start, you have to abide with them, uh, stay, stay with it, not look away, not deny it be like, yeah, yeah, this hurts. Um, but, but, um, but knowing knowing that resilience is key is also very helpful because then you have to actually think what are the things in my life that are going to build resilience 
habits. And so meditation becomes key, I think. Um, it's not perhaps something that everybody feels drawn to and, and I haven't done it for the last few days and I'm feeling guilty about it, but I think it's really important. Um, prayer, if that works for you, affirmations, if they work for you, exercise, all of these things, <clears throat> excuse me, all of these things that build um, resilience, relationships, hugely important. I, I remember Guy Spear saying to me at one point that he had written in his memoir, The Educational Value Investor, about how you have to do these things like move your Bloomberg terminal onto a low side table so that you know, you're not getting your attention isn't getting yanked around constantly. And then he's like, that stuff was so stupid. Really, like what I should have been focusing on was relationships because actually relationships are the killer app. And if I'm, if I'm getting on badly with my wife or my three kids, like how am I going to be able to think straight? How am I going to be clear headed? And so the knowledge that, yeah, these things like what you read and what you eat and all of this stuff, they, they all have an impact, but nothing is more important than the quality of your relationships. And so knowing that part of your resilience actually depends on you building good friendships and building a good support system and having a good family. And so then you have to say, well, so these things aren't a side issue. It's not like I just have to work like hell and be as successful as possible and kind of ignore my family, which is certainly what I used to do. And I still managed to have a pretty good talent for that at times. Um, but I think you have to say, no, it's all it all goes together and I can't actually succeed professionally in an enduring way if I don't have this support system, because there are going to be times where I'm struggling, where I'm in pain and I need people who love me to kind of rally around and lift me up. And so there's a beautiful idea from Munga where he, I, I was saying to him, when, when, when I look at you and Warren Buffett, what are the lessons about how to have a happy life? And he immediately talks about relationships, immediately talks about the quality of his relationships. And he says, I, I've, I've been a good partner to Warren. He's been a marvelous partner to me. And, and he said, and the secret of a good partnership, of a good relationship is if you want to have a good partner, be a good partner. And likewise, if you want a good spouse, deserve one, be a good spouse. And, and, and same goes for friendship as well. So that very simple idea, we were talking before about the ability to, to distill com complexity, to, to get to the essence of, of, of what, uh, what actually works in life. That's a, that's a brilliant distillation from a 98-year-old polymathic genius, Charlie Munger, saying, if you want to have happy relationships, um, if you want to have a good partnership, be a good partner. Focus on yourself. Don't ask what the other person can give you. Uh, focus on what you can give them. And it, the same goes for marriage, same goes for, um, for the rest of your family. And so that understanding that the, the resilience is key and that you're going to need to have good relationships to be resilient. You're going to need to have habits like exercise and meditation. Um, that's been very clarifying, very helpful for me because then, then instead of my instead of my deluding myself into thinking that one day if I reach a certain amount of wealth, then I'll be happy. Uh, I can sort of say, no, 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 let me, let me refocus a bit on relationships because I'm missing that bit. Uh, or I, I used to, because I'm so physically lazy, I used to have this um, brilliant ability not to exercise because I would just say, no, I'm working. I've got to work. I've got this deadline. I'm working on this book. And then at a certain point you say, well, actually the exercise is not a side issue because 
um, how can I deal with my stress uh, if I'm not exercising? And because it's like a pressure cooker, right? Where you release a little bit of that pressure. And also how can I think clearly if I'm not exercising? And if I don't have energy, how can I be successful in a sustainable way? And so there are all of these benefits to exercise. There are all these benefits to meditation or prayer or helping other people or um, reading, things that don't directly seem to benefit you in a short-term way, uh, but that are actually really key. And, and so just understanding that these are important components of a balanced, calm, successful, sustainable life, that's, that's, that's been very enlightening for me. That's helped me a lot, I think. I, I couldn't echo what you said more. I, 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 I really love everything that you just said there. Cause I, I think a lot about that and, you know, we all struggle with trying to get the balance. Um, yeah. it's a work in progress always. Um, but you know, when you're feeling like you're in a groove, like it's nice, but also being painfully aware of like, Hey, you might get out of your group, but that's okay. You know, also tough. It's complicated because I think to be incredibly successful, you do sometimes have to be very extreme. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, a, so as, as with all truths, it's complicated. Like you want to have balance, you want to exercise, you want to spend time with your family, you want to meditate, but also it's very hard to be extraordinarily successful without being extreme. And I, I remember when, when Charlie Munger read my Monish Parabright took a, a, a video for me where he said to Charlie, what do you think of the book? And Charlie was very effusive and lovely about how much he liked the book. And he said, what do you, what do you think? Was there anything you found particularly interesting? And Charlie said, yeah, how many of us got divorced? <laughs> and, um, and he said, it makes sense because the game is so captivating. The game of investing is so captivating that it's easy to neglect your spouse. And that's really interesting that you, to be that successful requires a kind of narrowness. And so I, I don't know, you have to, to some degree, you have to accept the fact that there are times, I think, where you need to sacrifice things. And so, so the, the question is what you're going to sacrifice. And I, I remember I, I interviewed a, a woman from the book who I, for the book who I didn't write about, um, I felt a bit guilty about not writing about her. She, she, she managed an enormous amount of money, um, but it was pretty clear that she had very, very little going on in her life that I found really interesting because one of the things that had happened is I think she had about four children and um, she's a clearly really devoted and loving mother. And she had an enormous staff at work and was managing this vast amount of money, tens of billions of dollars. And so I said, you know, so what do you read? What have you read that's been helpful? And it's like, I don't have time to read. And, and, and I said, and um, well, I, I don't know, she was getting up, if, if I remember rightly, she would get up at something like five in the morning to exercise. And like, what a, I, I'm not saying this in any judgmental way. I think what a titan she could do that, that she could balance having four kids, being a good mother, running this business, exercising. She knew that she had to be like an athlete and stay fit and stay healthy. Um, she's a really good person. She did all of this charitable work and was on the boards of things. But one thing that she said to me that I thought was really interesting is she said, um, I've had to sacrifice a lot of friendships 
And she said, I just at a certain point decided if I'm going to be a good mother and successful at work and fit and healthy, I don't have time to see my friends. And so almost all of those friendships went by the wayside. And so it, it's possible that it's particularly extreme um, for women in a society that's still kind of um, somewhat paternalistic and sexist and structured so that selfish men like myself um, are more inclined to do what we want and to leave more stuff to women. And I'm sorry about that. I'm embarrassed that it's true um, to some great degree still structurally in our society um, and probably structurally in, in a lot of our families. But I, I do think it requires you to say, what am I going to sacrifice? What am I prepared to remove? And, and so I, I write at some length about this idea that I call the art of subtraction, where I think you have to say, um, what are the things that really matter to me? And what am I going to remove? What complexity am I going to remove? And I, and I had this the other day. I literally, I, I, I wrote to a guy I like tremendously and said, I'm, I'm, I'm having to withdraw from this book club that you invited me to join. That's a really wonderful book club full of brilliant professors and scientists. And um, I just, I just don't have the bandwidth. And that's tough because I'm someone who loves books and loves talking to really brilliant people about books. Um, but it's, it's a recognition of the fact that I can't, I can't do all of these different things. And so just this no, knowing knowing that you have to not be adding complexity to your life, but subtracting complexity at a time when everyone else is adding complexity is really helpful. And I, I was looking at some, some, someone was saying to me, um, oh, uh, well, I think it's Joel Greenblatt again. I was looking at, uh, at an interview of his and someone said, uh, you know, where can we follow you? And he's like, well, I'll, I don't have any of those things like social media accounts, Twitter and Facebook. And I thought that was really interesting. I'm like, okay, out of subtraction. Yeah, he's just decided I don't have time for that. I don't need it. Um, so so that, that's an important, an important thing, I think, to go through your own life and decide um, what am I, I going to remove? What am I good at? What games do I want to play? Um, how can I simplify? So in a sense, just to sort of bring things together, I think, I think we've discussed a whole array of things that seem kind of digressive, but actually in some ways they're all very interlinked. Um, how, how you succeed by removing complexity, simplifying, focusing on, on the things that, that work, um, uh, trying to lead a simpler, more streamlined life that's true to who you are and what, what matters most to you and, and accepting the fact you can't do everything, you can't be good at everything. Um, and so that discipline, that discipline and self-awareness um, to, to, to know what game it is you're playing, where you add value, I think that's, that's very helpful. I think that's might be a good place for us to end it. Um, I, I know we end it somehow. Robert. I was going to no, say, otherwise like, I'll I, talk for the next four days. And you got an interview to prepare for, yeah. I, but I mean, look, I selfishly would love to speak to you, you know, for another couple hours here, but right. uh, you know, we'll have to, we'll have to arrange that for another time. But you know, Great. with, with that William, uh, you know, <laughs> where can people go and find more information uh, to, yeah. to follow you and all um, that? I would, Sure. Yeah. No, you're, uh, you're welcome to follow me on, on Twitter where, 
Um, my handle is William Green 72 and I'm, I'm relatively active there and I'm relatively active on LinkedIn where you're welcome to befriend me. Um, and actually it's funny. I, I, I pretty much stopped using Facebook because I, I also decided nah, it's just too much. It's too many things. Um, and I, I really like Twitter, Twitter for investors, um, which I always dismissed years ago as being kind of an awful and superficial and short-term uh, drug actually it turns out for investors, I think, to be a really wonderful thing. Uh, there's an incredible financial community of people sharing ideas and insights. I, I, oh, I kind of weirdly love it. It's great. Um, so yeah, please feel free to contact me there. And, and I, I'm constantly getting messaged there and on LinkedIn and on my website, which is williamgreenwrites.com. And I, I do like it. I think it's lovely that people are in touch and I, I feel guilty that I'm always behind on the replies. But, but, um, but I love the fact that, that People reach out and tell me what's helped them from my book or, um, or from podcasts and stuff. And I, and I keep getting recommendations from people to read things. I, I, uh, so I bought a book just yesterday from someone who um, uh, was messaging me on Twitter and was like, you should really read this book by this Christian mystic who um, uh, you know, writes really similar stuff to, to what you're interested in from Buddhism and Kabbalah and all of these different areas. And, and so uh, it's nice that sense that we're all on this journey together and that not, none of us actually has figured it out. And I, I, I hope I've, um, I hope I've removed your, your, um, uh, your, your, your fantasy that anyone's figured this stuff out or is further along on this journey than you. They're, they're, we're, we're all kind of, I, I do think there are people who are further on, further along in the journey, but I think they're still struggling and they're still falling and stumbling the whole time. And, but, but, but we are kind of all on this journey together. And the, the more you can kind of help other people along the way, the more, the more fun it is. Absolutely. Man, you brought some, I want to go further, but it's okay. We'll, we'll uh, save it for the next time. We can talk but, another time. Well, William, thank you so much again for spending the time with me today. I really, really enjoyed our conversation and um, good luck. With the podcast. Thank you and, so much. And I look forward to every interview. You've now become my favorite podcaster. Sorry to all the homies out there. I just, uh, uh, sorry. This, and, uh, and, and really, thank you very much. Really appreciate you. Thank you. It's been such a delight. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast podcast.